letter 13, I tried to title each one of these letters around their theme. And I think the best theme for letter 13 would be called the turnaround, uh, the repentance, I don't know, the U-turn. But we've been, boy, things were pretty bleak if you remember where we last left things. It was kind of the, the very bottom pit at letter 12. And this is the excitement of the novel. Praise God. The patient wakes up in letter 13, makes a U-turn. Which, of course, is good news for all of us who are cheering for the patient. And it's terrible news. It is a disaster of the highest order for old screw tape and wormwood. So, like I said, things have been getting worse and worse. Our patient was, remember, he was not just, it wasn't just sin, but he was in this, this deep, remember, he was in depression. Do you remember that line that gets me, uh, uh, the enemy, the one without whom nothing is strong? Which is a play on words, that nothing has strength without God, and without God, even Nothing has a kind of strength. Nihilism. Ugh. So the demons were just, you remember, going to slowly nudge the patient along right into hell. No no quick turns, nothing to alarm, just just uh, lead them right in. I didn't say this last week, but um, that last part of letter 12, the, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Woo! There's a book by a guy named Russell Moore. Highly recommend this book called Tempted and Tried, all about temptation. And he, I think he quotes that. If he doesn't, he talks about it. And he has a chapter on, um, the lady's name escapes me, but she um, developed basically a more humane way to uh, kill cows. Um, you teachers may know her, help me. Thank you, Temple Grandin, and they do this feature on how the, the, the cows are, are kind of brought into the corral, and then, and then the, the, like even the walls are sort of like massaging, it's gentle, and there's no sudden turns, nothing to alarm, and they go until finally, they don't even know they're getting squeezed, little closer and closer and closer, until they don't even notice they're in single file. And then they go over this little conveyor, and they're just walking along, and everything's peaceful, and they don't even know the conveyor lifts them. They don't even notice when their hooves are off the ground, lifted up higher and higher, and then in a precise surgical blow of basically a glorified hammer, boom, right between the eyes. They go from livestock to meat. They don't even know. And she calls it the stairway to heaven. Like, I know, it's awful. I know, I know. So you read this, and I mean, it's not, I mean, steak's delicious. Anyway, the, the point is... Um, I mean, it's not like our Chick-fil-A sandwich. Not like those chickens died of natural causes. You know, I was like, all right, all right. Anyway, I really got off the rails with this. Jackie's like, it's not, you're on letter 13. You're not even on the right letter at this point. But what Russell Moore does with that image, I don't want to, just read the book. It's exactly what Screwtape's talking about. He's like, how many of us are like, it's like, you're feeling, no, you're like, you know what? Life is good. There's no, you know, I'm not feeling any temptation. If you're in the current of where Satan wants to take you, watch out. Like, the last thing Satan wants to do is to alert you or alarm you. So be on your guard. The enemy is like, like your adversary is prowling like a roaring lion. Anyway, I think of that chilling image of that, that last moment when the cow doesn't even know his feet are off the, and that's the, like the Bible, it doesn't just talk about sin. It talks about the deceptiveness of sin. So it's not just sin. It's that sin blind. Augustine said something like, first it blinds you, then it binds you. So first it takes away your ability to see it as evil. Then 
And that's why what we're doing matters. And, and coming here on a Wednesday night, th this is really important. And anything we do towards spiritual formation is fighting against. But, like, we're playing for keeps. You know, you get one shot at this life. And, 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 and holiness is so good. And the life I want is so glorious and good to be a human being set on fire for the glory of God, to live out like the Sermon on the Mount is so good. You don't, you don't get a do-over. Um, I want that. And so you want that. That's why you're here. And so stuff like this. So it's so like, oh, to hear, the, oh, to hear that the patient like had this turnaround. All right, here we go. My dear Wormwood. I'm back on letter 13, which is our topic tonight. <sighs> Seems to me you take a great many pages to tell a very simple story. The long and short of it is that you've let the man slip through your fingers. The situation is very grave, and I really see no reason why I should try to shield you from the consequences of your inefficiency. A repentance and renewal of what the other side call, quote, Cruise. On the scale which you described is a defeat of the first order. It amounts to a second conversion and, and probably on a deeper level than the first. All right, let me make several comments about this first paragraph. The first is, remember how throughout the book I've said sometimes we see wishful thinking on the part of Screwtape? I think this may be an example of wishful thinking. Why do I say that? Because he says to Wormwood, you let the patient slip through your fingers. Ah, but if he was truly saved, he was not in the devil's grasp, was he? And so he was in God's hands. I get that from what Jesus said in John 10, verse 28 through 30. I, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But Jesus says, I got them. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. To which you know somebody probably like, like was like, but wait, Jesus, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, can you say that again? You said that if somebody's saved, nobody can snatch them out of your hand. In the very next sentence, you said, so nobody can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Could you, like, break that down? Like, how, which is it? How does it work? That explains why the very next verse, what does he say? The next verse is, I and the Father are one. So I was like, you know, anybody who's like, well, Jesus was a great prophet, but he never claimed to be God. No, no, he did. He did. John 10, verse 30, for example. So it's not true to say that the patient slipped through Wormwood's fingers. And, and, and why do I say that? You need to know you are safe because God keeps you safe as a Christian. Um, if he's got you, then he's got you. If you're saved by faith, you're kept by faith. Screwtape then calls, he calls it, what does he say? It's a repentance and a renewal. I like that. Listen, I know it's kind of an old-fashioned word. I don't know that people use this word anymore. But I, I, I kind of like, I, I think it's, Probably needs to come back into our vocabulary. You guys remember the old revivalists used to talk about a backslidden Christian. I'm backslidden. Preacher, I'm backslidden. I'm backsliding. And again, a lot of these times these words get worn out, but then if you wait long enough, they actually come back into uh, uh, circulation. And I'm, I'm thinking this one probably needs to come back into circulation. It's a pretty helpful way to look at what happens when we go through a season of disobedience. Your relationship with God can't be broken, right? Uh, but but the fellowship with God can be broken. Nothing can sever the relationship with God, but your fellowship can be. So the solution to a backslidden Christian, the solution is what? Re repentance. A rededication, the old revivalists call it. Uh, uh, repentance, whatever. A U-turn. God allows U-turns. You know? Uh, and he's not going to give up on you. You know, I was... Um, I heard H.P. Charles talk about this. The same thing happened to me, but he was, he was asked to preach in a place he wasn't familiar with. I've done it many times. He, 
and, and I think, how, how on earth am I going to get home? I have no idea, you know, where I'm going, and it's no problem. Why? Siri. And so I'm just like, hey, Siri, you know, get me home. And I've never, I've never had the experience. I've many times, like, not been able to do it. So I was like, turn right. But I don't know where I'm going, and I couldn't tell. There were lots of right turns. So she's like, you know, Siri will be like, turn left up here, and I'll miss it. And then she'll say, what? At the next available U-turn, <laughs> turn left, you know. And sometimes I'll miss that one. But I've never had Siri be like, you know what? Then I'm done with you. Get yourself home. <laughs> like, I've had enough. I obviously know how to go. You don't know how to go. I've told you three times to repent, and you don't do it. For as long as I drive, Siri's going to say, at the next available U-turn. At the next available U-turn, right? Sometimes, as a preacher, maybe you have a friend like this. You want to be like, I'm not giving up on you, man. At the next available U-turn, turn. Like, repentance, uh, to borrow from a sermon I preached a couple weeks ago on John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Charles Spurgeon says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. And so the devils know how bad this is. Why does he say a rededication is almost as bad as a second conversion? I think it's because as we grow in grace and we grow in our awareness of sin and we love God, like, like even more, it's like we're aware even more of what he had to do to save us. So this rededication, in some ways, some of you, this is actually your story. Some of you got saved at an early age. And you don't realize until you're older what a blessing that is, to be raised in a godly home. And, okay. But because you were, raised, you were saved at an early age, it wasn't until maybe later in life, in college or something, that you really had like a rededication where you just really, like things connected for you. And in some ways, you know what Screwtape's saying. It's like, wow, that was almost even as powerful in some ways. It's almost like a second conversion. It's not a second conversion, but it's like that. Well, Screwtape's furious. As you, he's going to break down how we got to this point. As you ought to have known, the asphyxiating cloud, that means uh, you can't breathe, the strangling, the asphyxiating cloud which prevented your attacking the patient on his walk back from the old mill is a well-known phenomenon. Now, you guys know what it is, right? It's the enemy's most barbarous weapon. <laughs> Again, the irony that a demon is talking about God as being barbarous. And generally appears when he is directly present to the patient under certain modes not yet fully classified. Some humans are permanently surrounded by it and are therefore inaccessible to us. Okay, what's he talking about here? Well, apparently he went on a long, the patient went on a long walk to the old mill, whatever that is. And on his way back, he came under this cloud that the devils could not penetrate. And Screwtape calls it a, a phenomenon. But we know exactly what it was, don't we? He was the Holy Spirit. It was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So in that moment, it could be you're driving along I-65 and it's like the Holy Spirit is right there speaking to you, right there like he's on your windshield talking to you about some matter and he's got you dead to rights and you can't escape that feeling. It could be at a, a church service and it's like the preacher's talking right at you and, and conviction is piercing your heart. It could be in some other quiet moment. I don't know, but, but you know it. And Screwtape says, in that moment, it's like an asphyxiating cloud to the demons. They can't, they can't be around that. Uh, they can't be around him. Uh, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't prove this. But I wonder if the patient gets like this big rededication on a walk to the old mill that he loved. Um, I can't prove it, but I, I went back this 
afternoon in Surprised by Joy, which is C.S. Lewis's story of his testimony. And I wonder if maybe this is a nod to his own experience. Lewis talks about, uh, he has so many great illustrations. He talks about the hound of heaven, you know, being set loose. And he was like running out of places to hide. And he's like an atheist, cannot be too careful in guarding their faith. He goes, because you get attacked from every side. <laughs> and it's like, he kept looking for a place to hide. And he said it was like a chessboard. He was running out of moves. And God was like slowly moving in on him. On all, and so the first thing that happened is like his friends became Christians. He was like, no! And then like he learned something at Oxford, and that would bother him, and he couldn't get out of his own philosophy. And then he says, um, uh, then he like uh, he, he, he has this two-step conversion where first he becomes a theist. In other words, there is no God to, no, there's a God. And then the second step, bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, actually becoming a Christian. But he said in that first step, he went out, uh, he was on a bus, and he goes, I don't know what happened, but I went out, and then like... It, it was like I was offered this moment where it's like you can take off all this. He, he imagines it like a lobster shell, like all this armor, all this constricting armor against me and just surrender yourself to me. And he said he did. And he goes, I don't know what happened, but on that way out and on the way back, I went out. I'm pretty sure I was an atheist. And when I came back, I believed in God. That's the Holy Spirit. He says, can you imagine me on my knees that night? The most reluctant convert in all of England. It's a beautiful picture. And he goes, and then the more I think about it, the more I think about how humble God is to come and save somebody like me who didn't even want to be saved, who had to be dragged kicking and screaming into eternal life. Well, then on his, in the final chapter, on his conversion to actually Christ, not just there is a God, but the God of the Bible and it revealed in Jesus Christ, he talks about it was, uh, it was on a trip to a zoo. Whipsneed, I don't know, I Googled it, it's still there. There was still a zoo there somewhere outside of London. And he said... Uh, He's been back and they ruined it because they don't let the kangaroos run free anymore. But anyway, um, but he said he went out on that walk. And uh, when he came back, he, he believed. That's the Holy Spirit. So I, I don't know, but I wonder if, if he's kind of, you know, that, a little bit of testimony in here. Anyway, the Bible says be filled with the Spirit. I love that. To be so close to God that the demons consider you untouchable. How would you like to be inaccessible to the demons? Be filled with the Spirit. Screwtape is so mad. What does he say helped lead to this event, of all things? Ugh. What got him to this point? Pleasure. Simple, human, joy. Pleasure. That's what set all this in motion. And here he's going to lay into Wormwood. And now for your blunders. On your own showing, which I think is an old-fashioned way of saying by your own admission, or it was your own idea, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed because he enjoyed it. And not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. Did you catch that? Remember, the past several letters, Screwtape has, Screwtape has not just been trying to get the patient to disassociate himself from God. He doesn't just want a big gap between him and God. He's been trying to get the man to even disassociate from himself, to forget who he is. Think of it this way. Maybe I need to uh, uh, draw this on the board here in a second. Over a long period of time, over time, you don't say you don't like who you really are or you're afraid to show who you really are, so you wear a mask. Maybe you wear the mask at work. Maybe you wear it at church. Over time, you get so good at wearing the mask and you get so used to it, you can't remember what it feels like not to wear the mask. You have conformed to what other people think you are for so long, you sort of forget, like, which is the real me and which is the mask me. That's what he's talking about. 
And he's been trying to get this guy to do it. And so remember last week, he just wants to desperately fit in with his friends. So he wears this mask for so long. He's been wearing this mask. And he knows like the right things to say. But convictionally, I think he's still, wait, but don't I believe this? I can't remember what I believe anymore. I don't know who I am anymore. And so what happened is he read a book. But he read a book simply because he enjoyed the book. Not because it was the right book. Not so he could impress others. Not so he could make clever remarks. He just enjoyed it. No mask. That's all. The second thing you allowed him to do, he goes on. In the second place, you allowed him to take a walk, to walk down to the old mill and have tea there. Tea is like, uh, like, uh, like warm uh, pigeon spit that Brit British people drink when they don't have coffee. So, I just shots fired randomly at tea. And it's not sweet. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But imagine he had said to walk to the old mill and have coffee there. To anyone who loves to eat, you know, I'm just kidding. I don't really think it's the spit of visions. <laughs> a walk through country he really likes and taken alone. Ah, so he gets out in nature and remembers who he is, not what everyone wants him to be. Very important. I think many people can attest when they go out in nature, right? They kind of reconnect with God. And, and many people have had this experience. Okay, in other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as to not see the danger of this? The, ca the characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. Now, remember, everyone, above all else, John chapter 8 tells us what? Among other things, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking uh, to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says that when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. Why? Because Satan is the father of lies. So, so any truth is bad for the devil because Satan has built a house of cards. It's a lie. It looks really sturdy, but the minute you start pulling out any of the lies, the whole thing may collapse. So Screwtape says here, there's two ways you try to capture a person's soul with the path you're going on. Two strategies. And so a demon's going to use different lies based on which strategy he chooses. One of them is to get him to basically, let's see if we can explain this. One is to get him to be basically a spoiled whiner, for lack of a better word. Get him so discouraged and so filled with self-pity that his thought is always, woe is me. No one has it as bad as me. And so if that's what you're going for, then the one thing you want to keep him from is real actual pain and suffering. Because when he faces real pain, he would realize, whoa, I've been whining about all this made-up self-pity and first-world problems. I better quit my whining because now I've experienced real pain. And it's like, whoa, that, that's real pain. It, it, in a way, it like reveals uh, uh, the lies you've been building, that you can wallow in self-pity and you can be a spoiled sort of whiner. Here's how Screwtape words it. Thus, if, if you've been trying that, if you've been trying to damn your man by the romantic method, at referring to romance literature, not, uh, not Valentine's Day and Cupid and hearts and stuff. If you're trying to damn your man by the romantic method, by making him a kind of child herald or worther, submerged in self-pity for imaginary distresses, you would try to protect him at all costs from any real pain because, of course, five minutes genuine toothache would reveal the romantic sorrows by the nonsense they were and unmask your whole strategy. It's a great line. Child Harold is a Lord Byron character who goes on this quest. Oh, woe is me. Werther is the same type. Uh, uh, 
he's in a, a Goethe novel. They take all their first world problems and angst and head out in the world. Screwtape says, so the strategy to avoid would be any actual real pain and suffering. Five minutes toothache and they realize they've been whiners. But Wormwood hadn't been going that route. He was going the opposite route. He was trying to make the patient worldly and make him think that empty pleasures of this world are all the joy there is. So he wants him to tempt him to live for this world. So, but you, see that? But you are trying to damn your patient by the world. That is by palming off vanity, bustle. Vanity's pride and uh, bustle is the hurried excitement of human activity. Irony, by that I think he means cynicism. We talked about that last week. And expensive tedium, the next vacation, the next cool gadget, the more luxurious car, the second home, the third home. That, that's, that's where happiness really lies, he says. You were trying to pawn all that off as pleasures. How can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Didn't you foresee it would just kill, by contrast, all the trumpery which you have been so laboriously teaching him to value? Trumpery is trivial nonsense. He's saying, come on, Wormwood, isn't it obvious that when you have a man addicted to a counterfeit, the last thing you want him to see is the real thing? Don't let him see a real pleasure. Let him actually think that this, that this world can fulfill and have him constantly chasing the next thing. If you show him a real pleasure, he'll see that all this is trumpery. And on top of that, the sort of, and the sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all. It would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust you've been forming on it. And make him feel he was coming home, recovering himself. <laughs> it was just any pleasure. But it, no, it was the kind of thing that apparently reminded the man of who he really was. And it gave him a little jolt of the mask coming off. So as a preliminary to detaching him from the enemy, you wanted to detach him from himself. And it made some progress in doing so. Now all that is undone. All right. I heard Billy Graham say this one time. He kind of alluded to this. He called it, he talked about the gap. The gap between who I am and who I portray myself to be. It sort of falls me. And Screwtape's job is to widen that and widen that and widen that. And he's telling Wormwood, man, you had this thing like really wide. And now what happened in this pleasure is the gap was closed. This isn't the gap between the person and God. This is between the person, who the person is, and this mask, this image they portray for reasons that they're afraid they won't be accepted or whatever. And a lot of times that mask shows up in, in harmless things, right? I mean, innocent pleasures. Let me see if I can explain. So, so Screwtape is going to dive deeper into this point about the gap. So we'll just call this the gap. So the gap between who I am and who I pretend to be, we want it to be less and less. Billy Graham says, you know, I, I hope one day that the person I claim to be and the person I am are the same person. He, and and Screwtape calls the widening of this gap the detaching men from themselves. Detaching men from themselves. Oops, themselves. Yep. So here, let's let Screwtape explain what he means in his own words. <clears throat> of course, I know that the enemy also wants to detach men from themselves, but in a different way. Remember always, he really likes the little vermin. And he sets an absurd value on the distinctness of every one of them. When he talks about their losing their selves, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. 
Once they've done that, he really gives them all back all their personality and boasts, I'm afraid sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they'll be more themselves than ever. This is a huge point. You are never more yourself than when you're completely surrendered to God. You are never more individually you than when you're completely surrendered to God. On the other hand, if you surrender yourself to sin, you become more and more boring. You become like every other boring evil. Remember, Satan wants to consume. So, right? He wants to absorb your identity. So you lose a little bit of your identity each time you sin. But as you get closer to God, the glorious opposite happens. You get more and more individual, and your unique gifts shine through more and more. There's an old, uh, let's see, and now. Famous Kierkegaard quote. Have you heard this one? And now, by God's help, I shall become, you know this one? This is Kierkegaard. And now, by God's help, I shall become myself. Sorry, Kierkegaard. In other words, as we give ourselves over and surrender to God, we actually become more who you were made to be. You are never more truly yourself than when you're surrendered to God. So God wants every human being to say, not my will but yours be done, because we become more themselves, not less. Hence, so this screw tape picks up on this. Hence, while he's delighted to see them sacrificing even their innocent wills to his, he hates to see them drifting away from their own nature for any other reason. Do you see why? In other words, um, how can we illustrate it? Okay. Imagine this guy right here is a middle schooler. Okay? And... Um, and imagine what this middle schooler really wants more than anything in the world. He's a, a big, strong middle school guy and very athletic build. And all his friends are jocks. But what he really wants to do more than anything is play the flute. The flute's like his favorite instrument. And, you know, come on, there's that flute solo in um, that song. And, uh, and he loves it. And what he really wants is to play the flute. Um, but he... Uh, signs up for sports and doesn't really tell too many people that he loves the flute and he puts the flute away and he does sports because of peer pressure. Like, that's sad. You don't even know this stick figure and you're sad for him, right? Um, God is saddened by that too. Why? Because, like, it, it's not a sin. It's not a sin to play sports. It's not a sin to put down the flute. But Satan wants to do anything to always move you to the mass. Okay? And that's why he says, Screwtape says, we should always encourage them to do so. The deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material, the starting point, with which the enemy has furnished him. To get him away from those is therefore always a point gained. Even in things like flute playing. Even in things indifferent, right? It doesn't matter. Flute playing is not a sin if you do or don't. It's not a sin if you play the sports or whatever. But it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world or convention or fashion or peer pressure, whatever, for a human's own real likings and dislikings. I myself would carry this very far. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste, which is not actually a sin. Let me point that out. <laughs> In other words, peer pressure. If you start to get a person who likes what they like, and we're not talking about sin, uh, let me say that. If you love some habit or you love some behavior that is sin, uh, I'm sorry, you have to surrender that. 
Sorry. But if you're talking about a hobby or pleasure that is not sin, but if you just like it because you like it and, and you're, you're going you're gonna to overcome peer pressure, well, that's a point in God's favor. So, so let me pick up where I was. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not actually a sin, even if something quite trivial, such as a fondness for country or for county cricket or collecting stamps or drinking cocoa. Such things, I grant you, have nothing of virtue in them, but there's a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgetfulness about them, which I distrust. The man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one thing in the world for its own sake and without caring two pence what other people say about it is by that very fact forearmed against some of our subtlest modes of attack. What's your taste mode of attack? Peer pressure. He wants you to have peer pressure. If you're the kind of person who's like, no, I like what I like and it's not a sin and I don't really care if it puts me in popular standing. But you're going to lose popularity. Oh. Screwtape's like, don't mock me. Right? I mean it. You're going to lose popularity. Oh. Oh, well. So you should always try to make the patient abandon the people or food or books he really likes in favor of the, quote, best people. The right food. The important books. <laughs> I've known a human defended from strong temptations to social ambition by a still stronger taste for tripe and onions. Get it? Has anybody liked tripe and onions? Has it hurt your political career? Yeah. You see what he's saying? Tripe and onions would be social suicide if you're, climb, if you're trying to climb the elite ladder of high society. But if you like tripe and onions, and you like it so much that, okay, I like my tripe and onions, even if that keeps me out of high society, you're sort of forearmed against Screwtape's attacks. One of our favorite professors at Princeton Seminary was an Old Testament scholar named Pat Miller. And Patrick Miller was a brilliant Old Testament scholar. Brilliant Hebrew scholar. Well-renowned. I mean, they, they did a, a, a book of essays in his honor, and like Walter Brueggemann did an essay in honor of Pat Miller. So just an Old Testament, brilliant Hebrew scholar. He went to heaven in 2020. And uh, we, we loved him. He was beloved. He was a brilliant Hebrew scholar. He also loved pro-wrestling. <laughs> and I always wondered how that went down at a Princeton Theological Seminary faculty cocktail party, you know? <laughs> like, what doors were maybe closed when they were talking about all, because everybody was so self-important and everybody, I could just imagine him being like, yes, that is a good point about the uh, social, cultural, uh, critical analysis of the book of Judges. And you know, on SmackDown last night, I saw Goldberg take down The Undertaker, and I, I just, I love that. Um, and so we had like this, um, we had this friend, this buddy, he was like a TA, and he was really good at Hebrew. And we put this life-size Goldberg uh, poster on his office door with this joke in Hebrew that they got. And I couldn't read it, but I was like, ha, ha, because I don't want to look dumb. And uh, see, see, right? Um, screw tape encourages that. Uh, anyway, I, like, he's kind of like, he's going to be hard for screw tape. A guy like that's going to be hard for screw tape to come after. Because he doesn't really, the peer pressure thing, he's sort of over. And it's not a sin. Uh, that may, it's probably not a sin to watch SmackDown. It might be. I don't, we'll leave that aside for now. It remains to consider, okay, what are we going to do about it? It remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. The great thing is to prevent him doing anything. Isn't that great? How great is that? 
Have all the religious experience you want. Just don't ever let any of it actually change the person's life. <laughs> How many of you can relate to that? This, this, when we would you know, preach, these, preach these youth camps, right? The kids come to summer camp. And they would be on the spiritual high of this church camp. And we'd say, look, it's not how high you, we would tell them, it's not how high you soar when you're on the mountaintop. It's how straight you walk when you come back down. In other words, is any of this spirituality and any of this like great emotionalism, is it going to make a difference in your life? So as long as he doesn't convert it into action, Screwtape says, it doesn't matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. <laughs> Let him, if he hasn't he bent that way, write a book about it. That's often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy plants in a human soul. Uh, everybody see the irony there? I mean, Lewis is smiling at himself. He's basically saying, if you really want to deaden your soul, write a book. He says as he's writing a book about spiritual formation. Anyway, I think Lewis is having a little fun with this thing. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. In other words, fine, fine. We've lost him for repentance, fine. But don't let him act on it. Don't let him actually do anything about this. And then he ends with an unusual quote. Probably, I read online, it's from Joseph Butler, The Analogy of Religion. I don't know. I'm not 100% sure I understand it, but I think I can tell you what I think it means. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he'll be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he'll be able to feel. Your affection, Uncle Screwtape. What I think he means by active and passive habits, actually getting up and doing something about an impression strengthens the habit. So you know you need to exercise, you're convicted by that, you go running. Maybe just a few minutes, maybe it's just walking, but you do it the next day, in the, new in the next day. And eventually the habit grows stronger. But if you get the impression to go running and you ignore it, it gets a little easier to ignore it the next time and ignore it the next time. So imagine you're watching television and one of those commercials comes on like feed the children, you see these starving children in need, it moves you to act, you feel like the Holy Spirit's telling you to act, but you don't. Well imagine if you saw that commercial a hundred times, the first time you were moved, but over time you would grow desensitized. So it takes a little more and a little more. And the longer you, you feel led to do something and say no, the more you know the right thing and, and you become desensitized to it and your feelers, so to speak, get weak. I guess the more often you can feel something that's the right thing to do without acting on it, in the long run you'll be so desensitized you won't even eventually be able to feel the right thing to do anyway. I think that's what he means. And so he's saying, fine, in this case of repentance, the best thing to do, if he feels all this, is get him to not act on any of it. Don't actually let him be obedient to God in any measurable, in any, uh, in any biblical way. All right. Okay, left myself about 15 minutes for letter 14. We got this. <clears throat> letter 14 is fun. They're all fun. Okay, we'll erase the gap, we'll erase Tempted and Tried, we'll erase Soren Kierkegaard. Letter 14, I would title, Humility. The nature of true humility. Here we go. My dear Wormwood, the most alarming thing in your last account of the patient is that he's making none of those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. No more lavish promises of perpetual virtue, I gather. Not even the expectation of endowment of grace for life, but only a hope for the daily and hourly pittance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. Oh, this is very bad. 
Apparently, Screwtape likes it when a Christian makes these promises, like some of us made when we first got saved. I'll, I'll never sin again. You know, with these kids that they get saved at church camp and they're like, I, that's it. I'll never sin again. I'm going to follow God every day. I'm going to go back to my home church and do a backflip off the balcony and clothesline the devil. <laughs> so fired up. And uh, uh, Screwtape says, I actually don't mind that as much as it's very bad when Christians just ask for daily grace. Or worse, hourly grace. Why? Because it's a mark of immaturity to think you're going to be, I'm going to be God's gift to Christianity and I'm going to knock it out of the park. It's a mark of maturity when you realize, like the old hymn says, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. Screwtape's like, uh-oh. That's not only a mark of maturity. The way this guy's praying, God, I'm not making any promises. If you'll just get me through the next hour of obedience to you. The way he's praying, whoo, it's not only a mark of maturity, it's a mark of humility. I see only one thing to do at the moment, Screwtape writes. I love this. It's one of the great, great lines in the whole book. <laughs> Your patient has become humble. So what's the best thing to do if you're a demon and your patient has become humble? It's a great punchline. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to this fact? Isn't that great? Hey, he's humble. So the one thing to do, make him proud about it. <laughs> All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. Isn't that great? I did it. I did it. I did it. I've achieved true Christian humility. I did it. That's awesome. That's what makes me awesome. That's what makes me better than all of you. I've achieved humility. Oh, I see the irony. Right? Get him to be proud of his humility. Pride at his own humility immediately will appear. Now, if he awakens to the danger and tries to smuggle, sm smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try it too long for fear you awake a sense of humor and proportion, in which case he'll merely laugh at you and go to bed. In other words, don't overplay your hand, but try as much as you can to make him proud of his humility. So that's the first step. Most people think of that, but here is where I think Lewis is so good. He does a deep dive into humility, and this is incredible self-awareness. But there are other profitable ways of fixing his attention on the virtue of humility. By this virtue, as by all the others, our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him and to the man's neighbors. Pause there. By this virtue, everybody see that? As by all the others. So let me ask you, what is the point of humility? What is the point of any virtue? What's the end goal? What is God after? What's the point? Answer? Love God. Love people. That is the point of humility. That is the point of any virtue. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. All the point of all these virtues is to get a human to grow in their love for God and their love for neighbor. That's it. So he says, all the abjection, that word means uh, being put in a low or downcast state. All the abjection and self-hatred are designed in the long run 
Solely for this. Solely for this end. To love God. To love people. Unless they attain this end. Unless they get better at loving God and loving others. They do us a little harm. In fact. They may even do us good if they keep the man concerned with himself. And above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of other selves and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty, you must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility, which is what? To love God and to love others. Satan wants to keep that out of your head. Because to do this, you have to forget about yourself altogether. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion, of his own talents and character. This is where Lewis, to me, shows his brilliance. The number one mistake when we think about humility. We think humility is when a person thinks less of themselves. No, I'm, I'm not very good. Oh, shucks. No, I'm, I'm not very bright. I'm not. This is the humility of, uh, if you remember reading David Copperfield, Charles Dickens' book, this is the humility of Uriah Heep. Anybody? Oh, no, Mr. Copperfield, I'm not like you. I'm just humble. I'm so very humble. I'm just, we just have an humble abode. We're not like you, Mr. Copperfield. Uriah Heap takes about three pages before you are sick of Uriah Heap. You want to throw up at the thought of Uriah Heap because it's so much false humility. Oh, no, no, I'm just an humble. And he keeps saying humble instead of humble, which drives you crazy. Anyway, the, the point is, I'm not really good. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm a humble servant. I'm not worthy of being in your presence. He's trying to downplay and... Pretend they aren't valuable. That's what a lot of people think humility is. is thinking less of yourself. Thinking less of yourself. Okay? Whoops. Oh, well. There we go. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. So, screw tape saying, get him to, like, deny, try to downplay or pretend that, 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 that his talents aren't valuable. Here's what he writes. Some talents, I gather, he really has. Okay. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. Now, no doubt they are, in fact, less valuable than he believes, but that's not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for some quality other than truth, thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. In other words, turn humility into a lie. Make someone who's really good at sports try to convince himself they're not. That's not true. They are. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they're ugly and clever men trying to believe they're fools. And since what they're trying to believe may in some cases be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it, and we have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. And what's the point? Now they're always thinking about themselves. So, no. Humility does not mean you lie to yourself. Humility, can you imagine if our musicians that lead us in worship on Sunday? Can you imagine? They're so gifted. And let's just say instrumentalists. Let's just take the instrumentalists. So, so they're playing the piano or the organ or the keyboard or, the, or the, the guitar or whatever it is. Can you imagine if they think, okay, I've got to be humble. And I'm up here on this stage. And I know I'm leading worship. I'm leading God's people in worship. But they're all looking up here. And so I... It sure is too tempting to be prideful. And I don't ever want to lead worship out of the fleshly desire for pride and self-aggrandizement. So I've got to be humble. So about every other measure, I'm going to miss a note. And I'm just going to, I'm going to pretend I'm not a good guitar player. I'm not a good, uh, or a talented singer pretending I, I don't have any talent. It, it, it's not really humility and it's not really true, but it does keep the focus completely on you. So what do you do? What's the answer? 
What's the point? Here we go. This is the takeaway. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oops. That is, that's fantastic. That is supposed to save yourself. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm not very good at writing on a board. <laughs> Just an humble servant. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Get your eyes off yourself. That is the definition of humility. And by focusing on love for God, love God, and love for others, love people, you over time can stop like ranking yourself and, and take your eyes off yourself. Well, should I pretend to be bad when I'm really good at something? Should I pretend that I'm dumb if I'm really intelligent? All that. No, no, no. Just, just take your eyes off yourself altogether. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. That's the takeaway, by the way. That's the point. Now, the next paragraph to me is one of the most beautifully written. I, I've said that multiple times, but I mean it. So I'll just read it to you. To anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. The enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would have been if it had been done by another. Guys, that's real humility, isn't it? That's like, to be happy, to be happy that like the other kid on your kid's team scored the winning shot that won the tournament for the whole, you know, whatever. And meanwhile, your kid sits on the bench. But you're just as happy that that kid made it as your kid made it because the team won. You know what I mean? You're not thinking about yourself. You're not focused on yourself. Your kid wanted to be a flute player. Anyway, remember he was in middle school. The point is, uh, uh, that's silly, I guess, when it comes to kids' sports. Or maybe it's not. But, like, to celebrate when, you know, what if you're, like, 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 like pastors in, in a, a town like ours, you know, what if God blesses one church with, with tremendous growth and they seem to be hitting on all cylinders? And, and what, what about me, Lord? Would I be just as happy because the kingdom is growing? If I am, I'm taking my eyes off myself and I'm experiencing true humility. You know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, you can think of your own examples. I mean, this guy hits his sales goal and he gets the, the vacation to Hawaii and you get like a Starbucks gift card better luck next time. Like, are you happy that the company achieved its great goal? Or deep down, it's like there's this bitterness. Um, anyway, imagine a point where God could get you to be so happy that this cathedral exists that even if you did it or somebody else did it, like the enemy wants him into the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as is in his neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as like glorious and excellent things. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible. But it is long-term policy, I fear, to restore to them a new kind of self-love, a charity and gratitude for all selves, including their own. When they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they'll be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. For we must never forget what is the most repellent and inexplicable trait in our enemy. 
He really loves the hairless bipeds. <laughs> and he's <laughs> hairless bipeds. Isn't that a great description of human? Start calling your friends the hairless bipeds. <laughs> he is created and always gives back to them with his right hand what he has taken away with his left. I, look, that, come on, that's that's amazing. You know, he he he, he he's not. He's, he, it looks. You try to convince people, but like, like Screwtape says it so much more eloquently, ironically, but it's like, I try to convince people, God is not trying to take something from you. He's trying to get something to you. And so if he's taking away your selfishness, it's, it's only because he wants to get to you selflessness. If he's taking away greed and you resent him for it, he's actually trying to get you this gift called generosity. He's, he's trying to take lust because he's trying to get this, this cool, clear water of purity to you. He's not trying to take, he's trying to give. And so he's not trying to take away this sort of, yes, there's some abasement. There's in the sense that not my will but yours be done. But in the end, he's actually trying to give you a proper view of yourself, which in the end, you can love your neighbor and you see your neighbor as a gift. But then you think, I'm a gift too. Everything is a gift. It's all gift. True humility is a life that sees everything as a gift. It's all gift. Gratitude. Oh, it's like the, the, to use his illustration, it's a gift from God, the guy thinks, that I was able to design and build this cathedral, and I rejoice in that art. But it's not pride that I did it. It's gratitude that this gift exists. So humility, which we think would ironically lead to self-hatred, no, when you see yourself and others as a gift from God, you can say with no pride at all, I have been fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. It actually leads to loving yourself. So I would say this, you are kindest to yourself when your eyes are not on yourself when you're loving God and loving others. You're actually being the kindest to yourself when your eyes are not on yourself, but on loving God and helping others. I just want to reread this line. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible, but it is long-term policy, I fear, to restore to them a new kind of self-love, a charity and gratitude for all selves, including their own. When they really learn to love their neighbors as themselves, they'll be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. He would rather the man thought of himself a great architect or a great poet and then just forgot about it than he should spend much time and pains trying to think himself a bad one. In other words, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Your efforts to instill either vainglory or false modesty into the patient will therefore be met from the enemy's side with the obvious reminder that a man is not usually called upon to have an opinion of his own talents at all, since he can very well go on improving them to the best of his ability without you know, deciding on his own precise niche in the temple of fame. You must try to exclude this reminder from the patient's consciousness at all costs. In other words, you don't have to actually keep score. The, uh, most people are not called upon to determine where you rank in the temple pantheon of fame. There's an old uh, preacher story, which means it's probably not true, but it's a great illustration. Uh, but there's an old story about this uh, preacher who really, boy, he really thought he knocked it out of the park. Knocked it out of the park one Sunday morning after a Sunday sermon. So he comes home and he asks his wife. I mean, you know, the wife was there. The wife heard the sermon. He says, uh, honey, be honest. How many, how many truly great preachers do you think there are in this country? 
I mean, I mean, like, like who is in that echelon? Really? How many truly great, I don't mean they're good, how many truly great preachers are in this country? The wife says, one less than you think. <laughs> so what Lewis is saying is, guys, not, you, you, don't, you don't have to be the one to judge that. And uh, uh, I think, uh, did any, have you ever grown up hearing this expression? Did your grandma tell you, hey, man, don't toot your own horn. You know that one? Right? Like, let somebody else toot your horn. I was in this, uh, uh, let somebody else, if anybody's going to talk good. I was in this uh, group of pastors, and they were asked, like, what was the best leadership advice? And this guy got up there, and he, he was great. He said, the best leadership advice is from my grandma, who said, don't toot your own horn. And he said that uh, if any of the grandkids were talking, and grandma could be in the other room, it didn't matter. If any of the kids were talking about something, it just got a little bit, little bit braggy, even if it was a humble brag, you know. But they, were, they said no matter where grandma was in the house, they'd hear, toot, toot. You know? like, savage grandma, you know. Like, like grandma wasn't a real encourager, uh, but like, but anytime like somebody else, you know, uh, uh, decided they were gonna brag on themselves, she would just hit them with a little toot, toot. Like I'm hearing a lot of that. Um, I thought that was, uh, and that, 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 that's what Lewis is saying here through Screw Tape. Like, you, look, you, you can you can put your head down, you can do your work, you can you can be as great an athlete or a leader or whatever it is you're called to do, a uh, teacher or educator, you, you know, to, to, to a student, you you can be as as great at that as you can be without. Let somebody else decide where you rank and all that stuff. Let them toot your horn, so to speak. But, um, but humility is just like, let, let's forget about ourselves for a second and just serve God, serve others. The enemy will also try to render real in the patient's mind a doctrine which they all profess but find it difficult to bring home to their feelings. This is great. The doctrine that, you know, they did not create themselves, that their talents were given them, and they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. Or in my case, the two colors of my hair. There's a pride crusher. Hey, newsflash, you didn't make yourself. And he's saying, now, Wormwood, they say they believe that. Oh, God's our creator. But they forget that. They so what do you have to be prideful about? What do you have that was not a gift? Right? So you, come on. It's all a gift. Here we go. It's all a gift. But always and by all methods, the enemy's aim will be to get the patient's mind off such questions, and yours will be to fix it on them. Honestly, even of his sins, the enemy doesn't want him to think too much. Once they're repented, the sooner the man turns his attention outward, the better the enemy's pleased. Your affectionate uncle screw tape. <laughs> even sins. I have, some people I know have been rendered ineffective by pride, masking itself as false humility, even as they're thinking about their own sins. It goes like this. Oh... God could never save me. There's no hope for me. Why not? I'm too far gone. I'm too far fallen. That sounds humble, but what you want to tell him is, dude, that's actually pride. Because think about what you're saying. I'm too sinful to save. No. No, he can save all you other sinners, but me? I'm special. I'm a super sinner. You see, it sounds humble, doesn't it? But it's just pride. It's pride masking itself as humility. So he's saying even get over, get over yourself. Move on. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Focus on God. Focus on others. And uh, uh, that's how you, you get around uh, Screwtape's humility strategies. All right.